Ross has all the spring deals you want, so you can say yes to more looks for you and your budget. Tube tops for less? Yes. Dad shorts for the weekend? Yes. Mini skirts for less than online? That's a yes for you and your bank account. Find your certified yes for me moment and save 20 to 60% off department store prices every day at Ross. Hurry in for spring deals today. Items and styles vary by store. The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. The first degree. First degree. First degree. First degree. First degree. First degree. The first degree. See it on the news. See it on the paper. You see it on Facebook. These things are supposed to happen in movies, not in real life. I was with my grandmother and her sister. We were in Texas visiting my mom's side of the family. And my grandmother gets a call from the Red Cross and they told her that my dad had passed away. And we got on a plane the next day and flew back home, went to the funeral. And my mom didn't know what to do with herself. And she was like, I have to tell you something. If you wanted to set the record straight, tell the truth, solve this case, you had your moment, you had your time. A big thing that's been going around the family is like, oh, that's not really what happened. Or you got that wrong or whatever. And it's like, okay, well then tell me the right thing. What really happened? Oh, you're not willing to do that? Then I'm gonna keep going until I get the right thing from someone somewhere. Welcome to The First Degree, the true crime podcast that you might end up on. My name is Jack Fanick, and I'm sitting here with Alexis Linkletter. How are you doing today, Lex? I'm doing great. We're dealing with Superstorm Hillary. <laughs> Hearing the sweet pitter-patter of the raindrops just outside the window, it's kind of calming. It is kind of crazy because California gets absolutely zero rain in the summer, and I do miss a summer storm. It hasn't hit us hard here, but... Not yet. We are just seeing the beginning of it. Obviously, we're recording this in advance, but we'll see what happens. But I have heard some silver linings about it. I've heard that this will drastically decrease our chances of bad wildfires in the oh. fall. Oh, yeah. Which saves, of course, a lot of plant life, homes, animals. So let's hope that's the case. That's true. I know it's like wildfire season right now. So that's great. There you go. Yep. Before we start today's episode, just wanted to remind you that if you're out of true crime content, you can join us over on Patreon. We have brand new episodes every single week of true crime cases for you over there. We have video content for all of our killing time and just lots of lots of good stuff over there. Yeah, we're covering some really amazing stories, all listener submissions over on Patreon. So if there's a case that you're not a first degree for and want covered, Patreon is a place for that. Absolutely. Well, I think that's enough of that. So let's turn down the lights and turn up your anxiety because this could be you.
most of us can't imagine the pain of not only losing a loved one to murder, but for that murder to remain unsolved. And with around 270,000 unsolved murders in the U.S. currently, it means that this is a gut-wrenching reality for many people. And getting justice for someone ripped away from us is that light at the end of the tunnel. But sometimes that light doesn't come, leaving the families of the murdered in limbo. And the murders, they just keep coming, meaning that with every year that passes, the stack of cold case files piles higher and higher. If law enforcement does everything they can to catch a killer who continues to evade them, it's some comfort knowing the police are on the side of the victim's family. But for communities like people of color, where we know systemic racism and unconscious racial bias influence every aspect of an investigation, this makes it even more difficult. It's hard to imagine sitting there and accepting that justice is hopeless, that it's not coming. But some people, they just don't accept that, and they decide to act. Some people take matters into their own hands. So we begin today's case on July 11th of 2002. People on TV were viewing The Wire, Monk, CSI Miami, and the pop culture juggernaut that is American Idol. And speaking of pop music, Nelly was in his third week at number one with Hot in Here. Such a good song. An absolute classic. Great song. Still slaps. I know. I should play it at my wedding. And uh, also Eminem's Without Me was high on the charts as well. And at the movies, people were seeing Men in Black 2 and Mr. Deeds. The setting for today's story is Bridgeport, Ohio. Situated in eastern Ohio in Belmont County, today the small town of around 1,500 people is located about 125 miles east of Columbus, on the border with West Virginia, just across the Ohio River. Bridgeport is quite conservative, being in such a rural area, and it's so close to West Virginia that there are two vehicle crossings over the state lines. In terms of the demographics, according to the most recent census, most residents own their own homes, and the population is overwhelmingly white, 84% of residents, with the black community making up just 6.8%. We don't usually mention statistics like these, but we are in this case because they're relevant to today's story. So our first degree for today's case is named Madison, who's a 28-year-old TV producer living in L.A. She's not from L.A. originally. She's actually from West Virginia. I grew up in Charleston, West Virginia, which is Appalachia to a T. It's people who used to be coal miners and now they're in sort of a big city for that area. And it felt very like small town vibes mixed with like the country aspect that you probably see on like television. Madison's childhood was a little different from most. Her parents had briefly lived together, but were never married. My parents weren't together, and they were never married. But they were cordial and friendly, and I didn't really see, like, fighting or anything like that. So in my mind, that was kind of normal for parents not to be married or live together, but have a relationship. Madison had a massive blended family with half-siblings on both sides and six siblings on her dad's side alone. But early on, she was essentially raised by her mom as an only child. My dad wasn't around anymore, so I grew up in sort of a single-parent household. It was just very, all of these sort of different themes kind of come up when I talk about my childhood and how I grew up, but I think a lot of that informs now where I am and what I'm doing and how I see the world and am able to kind of take on these things that to some people seem super challenging, but to me feel very familiar because I grew up with a lot of resilience that was just required. 
When Madison was five years old, her maternal grandmother stepped in to become Madison's primary caregiver. My mom wasn't always around either as much as she wanted to. My parents both struggled with drug addiction, and so that was something that I was shielded from, thankfully. I didn't have the upbringing of being around drugs in the household or kind of I never saw anyone doing anything like that. And I was very much shielded from that. My mom's mom was my like main caregiver really throughout my life. She definitely stepped up and she has a sister. So it was kind of like, I always tell people now, like I was basically raised by like Grace and Frankie. They couldn't be more different from each other. And they were raising me (laughs) together. So it was very funny. They had lived together for a while because they were both divorced. And it was very similar to the show. But in West Virginia. Madison's grandma took her to dance class and after school programs. And the young girl didn't feel anything was unusual about her life. Other than the fact that not many people where she grew up looked like her. Given Madison's dad, John, who she was seeing regularly, was black. When I think about myself as a kid, I was like a happy, normal kid who like played soccer and did ballet and like went to school and didn't really notice that I was sort of surrounded by like this dumpster fire of a family and random circumstances that were just completely out of my control. And so growing up there was definitely weird for someone like me who looks the way that I look, but also had aspirations to be living in a big city and doing like kind of the West Coast LA thing. Growing up there was super, super strange. Then when Madison was just six years old, she received some shocking and unexpected news. Her father had died from a heart attack. I was with my grandmother and her sister. We were in Texas visiting my mom's side of the family. And my grandmother gets a call from the Red Cross and they told her that my dad had passed away. And we got on a plane the next day and flew back home, went to the funeral. Madison was sad, of course. All of it was just a bit surreal. After all, she didn't live with her dad, so he wasn't a big part of her day-to-day life. Plus, she was six years old, too young to understand the full magnitude of death and loss. I do remember being at the funeral and just kind of like sitting and being really quiet. Madison grieved as much as she knew how, and then life just continued on. Eventually, she made peace with her new reality and the loss of her father. I never asked another question again. I don't even remember really bringing up my dad beyond that. And I know that I would think about it sometimes growing up, like, oh, so-and-so's dad is here. Like, my dad would be here if he was alive. I didn't feel like, oh, my dad was taken from me. It felt like natural causes. I can justify a heart attack in my head. It's sad, but like, that's light. Like, it just felt like, oh, this is just the process of normal, this happening to people. A decade later, when Madison was 16 years old and about to graduate high school, she and her mom went to visit some of her family in Ohio on her late dad's side. My best friend's dad made headstones for a living. And my mom had brought up to me that no one had ever put a headstone on my dad's grave. And so I was like, oh, we should do that. Let's drive up and we'll put a headstone down. So my best friend's dad made us one and we drove it up and we put it down and She was like, while we're here, do you want to see your grandma Daisy? So we drive to my grandma Daisy's house. And again, kind of culturally, she lived with her two daughters and then their kids also lived there. So it was just kind of a big old happy 
black family. And at this point, her daughter, Pearl, had a son, Omar, who was old enough to be living on his own, but was living there at the time. He was not in the living room with us, was upstairs the entire time we were there. Towards the end of Madison's visit, something strange happened at her grandmother's house that Madison couldn't really explain, and she still can't explain it. As Madison and her mom were saying goodbye to everybody, Madison had a sudden and extremely visceral reaction to her 33-year-old cousin Omar when he entered the room. It was a type of intuition kicking in that Madison had never felt before in her life. As we were leaving, he came downstairs, and he's standing outside saying goodbye. And I'm turned around to wave goodbye. And I'm 16. And it felt like someone punched me in the stomach. And I hurl forward. And my mom is looking at me like, what are you doing? And I'm like, the wind was like knocked out of me. I couldn't breathe. So we get back in the car. And I'm like sitting in that feeling for a second. And I look at my mom. And I go, was Omar there when dad had a heart attack because I'm like visually seeing Omar standing there and not helping him. Madison's mom could tell that her daughter was shaken by the experience. She in turn was so unsettled that shortly thereafter, she dropped a bombshell saying to Madison, there's something I need to tell you about your dad. We're in the car and she pulls off and we go into a Buffalo Wild Wings and she's like, your dad was murdered. And a lot of people think Omar had something to do with it. And it's really freaking weird that you asked that question in the context that you asked it, knowing none of that. And that was the day that I found out my dad was murdered. In the aftermath of learning about her dad's murder, Madison's world was turned completely upside down as she struggled to process all of it. She was experiencing so many different emotions— almost having to re-grieve her father's death, knowing he'd not only met a violent end at the hands of someone else, but that his murder remained unsolved. And she couldn't help but feel completely betrayed by her family over the lie that she had been told, even though everybody thought that they were doing the right thing. It definitely shifted my perspective on my own pain. And I went from feeling like, oh, like the universe took my dad through natural causes to, oh, like a human being made an active decision to murder my dad. It just shifted the whole thing. And it felt like I was six again, finding out that my dad was not alive. Like it just totally shifted everything. And I felt like I had to go back and start again grieving in a very different way, through a very different lens. Now I'm 16 and I already didn't depend on my mom. Like I had already been through on and off living with my mom, on and off thinking that there was something weird going on, that she wasn't a reliable mom. And now I'm finding this out and I'm like, oh, now I definitely can't trust you, but now I can't trust anyone. Like I don't have any family member who was looking out for me being like, hey, you should probably know this. And I think that kind of put me into a, a really weird spin. I knew I wouldn't stay in West Virginia, but I think that was the confirmation, like, you've got to get out of here. Like, there is nothing left for you here. Go to college, start your own life. And I think that was sort of a, a really, like, pivotal moment for me as far as my relationship with my family went, where 
I just felt really uneasy. And that feeling certainly never went away and probably only got worse. Madison did get out of there. She threw herself into her future. I was like three weeks away from graduating high school and like going to college. I always had a knack for like video and editing and like making stuff and being funny or whatever, but I never saw it as a career. And I think that goes back to like where I grew up and just the, you're either a doctor, a lawyer or a coal miner. So like being a video producer maker is like not a thing. I had watched a lot of the crime shows and like, I loved America's Most Wanted. And I was like, wait a minute, do I want to make that? Should I learn how to do that? Is that what I can go to school for? And by the end, I graduated with a degree in communication. So it was like, I pivoted pretty fast and pretty hard. Like I was making documentaries about my friends. I was learning how to do audio. I was like shooting stuff for myself. The truth about her father's death would drastically alter the course of Madison's life, thereafter leading her down a rabbit hole and on a journey that she never anticipated. But it wasn't until Madison was 23 years old and done with college that the questions nodded her to such a degree that she realized that she needed to do something about it. The goal was always like, I have to learn how to make documentaries so that one day when I'm ready, I can start investigating my own dad's murder and it'll get solved. And then when Serial came out, it was like, oh, you actually can do this. And like, you can make waves and people will reopen things and look at things differently if you make this. And I kept waiting for like this right opportunity, this right moment. She'd get the clarity that she needed while she was on a cross-country road trip during the pandemic. I was listening to true crime podcasts over COVID. I was driving home to West Virginia. So I lived in Portland, Oregon, which was like notoriously shut down, like very closed for longer than anywhere else. I had just moved to Portland right before the shutdown. And I was just like, I am so isolated. I'm, I need to go home. So I rented a car because I was scared to fly. And I drove from Portland, Oregon to West Virginia, which is 41 hours one way. And I was listening to like all my fave true crime podcasts that I'd already listened to before, but I was like, I'll listen again it hit me like a ton of bricks. Like, it was like, oh my God, you have a story and you know how to kind of like put together a story now. Like you have that knowledge. And I was like, why am I not doing this? Why am I not making my own podcast, investigating this case, doing something? Because this is how shit gets solved. Like no one's going to care about my black dad who was murdered in Ohio Unless I make it cool and fun, which is super sad, but like the reality of the world that we live in, no one is going to care. ABC is not going to run a special about John Cornelius McGee unless I have everyone in the world talking about who this guy is. This was the call to action Madison had been waiting for. She thought, if no one cares about my dad's murder, I'm going to make them care. She was going to find meaning in her pain and her suffering. So that's exactly what she did. And to find out what she uncovered and what happens next, you know the drill. We got to go back. John Cornelius McGee, or JC as he was known, was born on May 4th, 1957 in Wheeling, West Virginia, to his parents, Charles and Daisy. 
My dad is from the Wheeling area, born and raised. He had many siblings and they were all born and raised there. His dad passed away when he was young. So I did know his mom. She outlived him by a long time, almost 20 years. My dad's family was super tight knit. So I also think that's pretty common in like black families as well to have like that camaraderie and sort of like you depend on each other. And especially when the family is big and you've got cousins and nephews and nieces running around, you get really close and they all lived really close to each other. So my dad was really, really close with his siblings, really close with his mom. By ninth grade, JC had dropped out of school and he later worked at an aluminum plant before an injury forced him out of the job. Charismatic, charming, and funny. JC was more than anything a generous person who would go out of his way to help others. At one point in his adult life, he owned several furnished apartments where he let people stay when they needed somewhere to go until they got back on their feet. So JC had been quite young when his first few kids came along. But by the time his daughter Alyssa was born, who was nine years older than Madison, he was ready to be all in as a father. He was strict and protective, but fiercely, fiercely loving. But JC, like many, struggled with some demons. He was a drug user, but had a desire for sobriety, which led him to attend NA meetings. This was where he met Madison's mom in 1994, who, as Madison mentioned, also battled addiction. Eventually, JC got involved with selling drugs. However, he managed to steer clear of the law and was eventually targeted by police as somebody who would make an ideal informant, given the high amount of drug activity in Belmont County. At the time J.C. was murdered, he was living next door to his sister, Pearl Faustin. And on the morning of the slaying, her son Omar and his girlfriend Kim were also at Pearl's house. When I was growing up, I took French in high school, but I could never get the language to stick. I wanted to be fluent so bad, but it never happened. I just couldn't focus and I couldn't practice enough. And it didn't work. But thankfully, there's Rosetta Stone, which is the most trusted language learning program. And it's available on desktop, or it can be used as an app on your phone or tablet. Rosetta Stone is different. It immerses you in so many ways. And with its intuitive process, you can pick up any language naturally, first with words, then phrases, and then sentences. And before you know it, boom, conversations. Plus, with Rosetta Stone's true accent feature, you'll get feedback on how well you're pronouncing words. It's like having a personal trainer for your accent. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, the first-degree listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com first. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com first today. Okay, so it comes as no surprise that I have absolutely no idea how to cook. I don't want to learn how to cook. It's not really my thing. But when I tried Factor meals, it was a freaking game changer. So Factor's fresh, never frozen meals are dietitian approved and ready to eat in just two minutes. Yeah, two minutes. So no matter how busy you are, you'll always have time to enjoy nutritious, great tasting meals. So the first time I tried Factor meals, I was actually blown away because I'm like, 
that's it. That That's all it is. Two minutes and the meals are so delicious. With 35 different meals and more than 60 add-ons to choose from every single week, you'll always have new flavors to explore. And you can treat yourself to restaurant quality meals that feature premium ingredients like filet mignon, ooh, fancy, shrimp, and blackened salmon. Like I said, they're so easy to prepare. I love them. So head to factormeals.com slash degree 50 and use code degree 50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month. That's code degree 50 at factorymeals.com slash degree 50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month while your subscription is active. It's almost summer and the best and most sustainable way to shop for a new season is on the realreal.com. The Real Real is the largest and most trusted source for authenticated luxury resale. It's the only place you'll find brands like Hermes, Cartier, Prada, Dior, Staud, Zimmerman, Jacquemus, and more for up to 90% off retail. 10,000 plus new arrivals land every single day from hundreds of brands you love, all authenticated by a team of in-house experts. Whether it's that perfect wedding guest look, a new summer sandal, an updated beach tote, resort wear for your summer vacation, you're bound to find exactly what you're looking for, plus deals you won't get anywhere else on therealreal.com. Visit therealreal.com and use code FIRST at checkout for 20% off. Terms apply. During the pandemic, Madison grew tired of allowing her dad's murder case to remain cold. She needed answers. She wanted to see everything available on her dad's case, which meant that she needed the case file. But she hit some unexpected roadblocks. I called the Belmont County Sheriff's Department and I said, hi, I'm looking for the police file on this murder case in your county. And things got weird really fast. They got really uncomfortable. And the woman then informed me that she needed to send the public records request over to the prosecutor's office and it takes a couple weeks and I should get it soon. And two weeks turned into two months, turned into four months, turned into me calling the prosecutor's office in November of that same year saying, hey, are you not releasing these files to me or are they not releasing these files to me? What's going on? It took them about nine months to give me anything at all. And I actually had to bypass the police department and go straight to the prosecutor's office in order to get anything. And that took even a while as well. I realized I don't trust anyone in Belmont County, but... The prosecutor's office was much more compliant than the sheriff's department. The prosecutor's office got me what they could as soon as they could. They had to redact things and kind of go through it, but they sent it to me. And when I asked for other things, I got nearly everything I asked for. So that also was confusing because it's like, I still have a weird vibe about you. And I don't know why I don't trust you because you're giving me what I'm asking for, but something still feels off. But sheriff's department was just weird. Madison was strategic though. She didn't tell law enforcement straight up that she was doing a deep dive into her dad's murder. She wanted to get as much information as she could as quickly as she could, but she didn't realize the police would actually become part of the story in her podcast that she would ultimately name Ice Cold Case. 
I think like in my podcast, we really dive into like how actually layered this case is. I did not realize when I started, but I very much realize now how many layers there are to this story. And the police is definitely one of them. Another thing that Madison didn't anticipate was the way her dad's own family spoke about his murder, as well as some of their evasiveness. They all talk about this in such a bizarre way that from the outside looking in, I'd be like, oh, no one would act like this talking about the murder of their family member or loved one. But all of them talk about it in a weird way. I also think that there's this weird kind of sentiment that's like, well, your dad's already gone. So like, what's it really going to do? to put someone else in danger or potentially incriminate someone else if they're family or like, you know, reopen this wound. I heard that a lot. Once Madison got her hands on some of the case materials, she began piecing together what law enforcement put forth as the official narrative pertaining to her dad's murder. The problem was most of it was based on statements made by Madison's cousin Omar, his mom Pearl, and girlfriend Kim, and the story wasn't really straightforward. So according to the Belmont County Sheriff's Department, there were around approximately four Black men that broke into Omar's house next door, where my dad's sister Pearl, Omar, and his girlfriend were all sleeping in the house. These men, possibly four, maybe three, broke into Pearl and Omar's house, tied them up with phone cords, poured rubbing alcohol on them and said they were going to light them on fire if they didn't hand over a safe with money in it. These men were there for around 45 minutes, which is the longest home invasion I've ever heard of by 44 minutes. So super weird. They're doing this home invasion, looking for a safe with money. They're radioing someone outside saying, Tone. Tone. So this person is potentially called Tone because it was also at six in the morning. So at around 640, they take Omar outside, these men. They leave Pearl and Kim in the house, tied up with their faces down, covered in blankets. So they can't see them, but they can kind of hear what's going on. They take Omar outside and they walk him over to my dad's house. They go up the steps to the front door of my dad's house. They kick in my dad's door, which woke up my dad. My dad comes out of his bed, walks down the hallway, and is standing in front of the... He's like about to open his front door, basically. But now it's kicked in. These men shoot him a kill shot into his head and leave. They're robbing Omar looking for money, but now they've killed my dad and haven't stolen anything. They didn't even enter the house. They're there for 45 minutes, radioing someone outside called Tone. Omar runs down the street. So my dad lived on a dead end. So it's like my dad's house, Pearl and Omar's house, and then this break shop. And that's the dead end. Instead of Omar running home, he runs to the break shop is standing outside of the break shop and the owner of the break shop walks outside and is like, are you okay? And then Omar's like, yeah, can I call 911? Immediately, things didn't make sense to Madison. There was something very wrong here with the official version of how things went down. Firstly, like Madison said, nothing was stolen from JC's house. It was also clear that somebody was lying. 
There wasn't any evidence collected from the scene, and Madison questions whether it was ever sealed off at all. To add more context, Omar was also a drug dealer and didn't have a good relationship with JC, his uncle. Madison told us about what happened next on the day of her dad's murder. Also, it's worth noting that Madison's 16-year-old sister at the time, Alyssa, was in the house with her father when he was killed. So my sister's in the house with my dad, Omar's girlfriend. Kim hears the gunshot. It spooks her because she knows that they've just taken Omar outside. So she breaks free from the phone cord and they have a home alarm system and she hits the home alarm system. So that's the first ping to the police station. But about 45 seconds after that, my sister comes out of her room and calls 911 and is on the phone with them, kind of walking them through like, my dad's laying here, there's blood. That's the second ping to 911. Three minutes later, Omar calls 911 never mentions a gunshot, says that his house was robbed, that they've tied up his mom and his girlfriend, that they were holding him hostage, but he never mentions my dad. He never mentions that anyone got shot and he never mentions gunshots at all. So then the police come, they rule this a home invasion gone wrong. Their story is that these guys were trying to rob Omar and Pearl and somehow accidentally ended up at my dad's house, killing him, getting no money, and then leaving. My first instinct was, oh, this home invasion was staged. This home invasion never happened. There's no way that anyone robbing anyone in the history of the world is gonna spend 45 minutes in a house, that they probably just knocked some stuff over, whatever, and that Omar killed my dad. That was my first, like, immediate thought. Now, when they started identifying the men, they're people that Omar knew. So that's also weird. These are his childhood friends. So you want me to believe that they randomly picked your house to break into, randomly took you outside, and randomly shot my dad on accident? I don't think so. There were constantly changing stories, mainly from Omar, about how many offenders there were, their physical descriptions, and even what their vehicle looked like. And the other weird thing is that when police had arrived on the scene, they first went to Pearl's house, not JC's, where it had been reported that the murder had occurred. And when it came to prospective charges against an accused man named Daryl Smith, who was identified by Omar and Kim as being one of the people there who participated in this crime, it got even weirder. Now, at this point, Omar is already useless. His testimony is almost so terrible that it's like whatever he says is definitely not what happened. And they're catching on to that. So the police are like, anything he says, it means nothing. But Kim was able to identify one of the guys. So she identified this guy, Daryl Smith. And a lot of people at the time thought he did it. And they took him to a grand jury. And when they got to the grand jury to see if they had enough evidence to take him to trial, Omar got on the stand and changed his story. And the prosecutor at the time, who I believe is named Frank Pierce, looked at everyone and said, we can't take this to trial. So basically, when the case went to the grand jury, Omar was a completely unreliable witness His account flip-flopped all over the place, and he changed the story he had initially told. He later admitted that he lied on the stand during that grand jury hearing. 
And even though he'd committed perjury during this hearing, which is illegal, he was not punished at all or charged. So this had a lot more moving parts than Madison was expecting, and she was still trying to work out the most compelling way to share her dad's story and develop her process. I did not know it was going to be a podcast. I actually really didn't want it to be a podcast. I really wanted it to be a documentary. The problem I ran into was that no one in my family wanted to be on camera because they were all very afraid of a very specific person. So I got what I could, which was all audio. And I said, all right, well, this is going to be a podcast. And hopefully, because I'm so set on it being visual, it'll eventually become a scripted show. And through that, we can, and I've never told anyone this, so it's exclusive for your podcast. Through that, we can really get around people saying like, oh, I don't want you to tell anyone that I said this, or I don't want you to say that I said this. Well, if it's scripted, you could tell people you didn't say that, but I'll put in what you really said. In conducting her research, Madison had to speak to family members she hadn't seen in 20 years, and some she'd never even met. As we know, Madison's older sister, Alyssa, was woken by the gunshot and was on the phone to 911 as her father died in the doorway. So naturally, Madison wanted to talk to her, but it wouldn't be that easy. Talking to my family was super uncomfortable because for some of them, I had never met them before. I interviewed my sister, who I hadn't seen since the day of my dad's funeral. So it was really weird and uncomfortable. I mean, it took me almost five or six years just to get my sister to like text me back. So I had been reaching out via Facebook for years, even before I started looking into this or anything. And she did not want to talk to me. Now she had trauma and she wasn't sure kind of where I stood with things. And there's, there's a whole plethora of reasons why. And I do not fault her for that at all. And that was really frustrating because she's the one person who was there. So I needed her to sit down with me and really think for a minute about what she remembered, if anything was weird going on before that. What was the context of dad's relationship with Omar the weeks leading up to that? No one in the world would know but her. So I really needed her to talk. And so that was really uncomfortable. And then also like, we're seeing each other for the first time in 20 years. I knew that I really wanted to talk to Kim and I knew that Kim and Omar are no longer together. It took a very long time, but I actually did have a conversation with her. And she talked about this home invasion like it was this one of the scariest things that's ever happened to her. And I think that's when it hit me. It was staged, but she didn't know that it was staged. And of course, it's scary when someone's holding a shotgun to your head and saying they're going to light you on fire if they don't get money that you don't have and you don't know where it is. It was very clear to Madison by now that she'd opened Pandora's box and was now unraveling an extremely layered mystery. To complicate things, she'd always assumed everyone in her dad's family would want to see this solved as well. But she soon learned that not only was that not true, but that some people she spoke to knew way more than they were letting on. It left Madison wondering who she could trust. I met with some other family members who I won't name because I don't name them in the podcast for their safety. So we're meeting for the first time. I flew out there, went to their house, talked to them. Some were over the phone, but a lot of them were in person. And it was uncomfortable because they were 
not holding back. I mean, they told me a lot about my dad and, you know, my dad was a former drug dealer who had kids with multiple women. It's not easy to sort of paint this picture for a daughter being like, yes, your dad was a great guy, but also like he had his things going on. Nobody is a perfect victim, but nothing makes anyone undeserving of justice. Ross has all the spring deals you want, so you can say yes to more looks for you and your budget. Tube tops for less? Yes. Dad shorts for the weekend? Yes. Mini skirts for less than online? That's a yes for you and your bank account. Find your certified yes for me moment and save 20 to 60% off department store prices every day at Ross. Hurry in for spring deals today. Items and styles vary by store. The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. Madison knew the police's official narrative of her dad's slang wasn't accurate. Through her own investigation and meticulous research, she landed on three primary theories regarding the motive for her dad's murder, which she explores further in her podcast. After going through like everything and talking to everyone, there's a ton of possibility, which is frustrating. So when I started kind of looking at like the hundreds of things in the beginning, I was able to quickly rule out like a lot of them. But there were three theories that really remained, and we explore each one in its own episode of the podcast. First off, there was a man named Butchie, another drug dealer who was known to hate JC with a passion. JC testified against Butchie in the early 90s, and this resulted in Butchie being imprisoned on drug charges. At the time of JC's murder, Butchie was also dating JC's ex-girlfriend, Deneen who was also a drug user and with whom JC had a son named Shane, who was born after Madison. So we need some red string here to help us stay connected with where everyone is. So this guy, JC testified against, so obviously hates him for that reason. And it looks like there's some romantic rivalries going on here as well. So Deneen had custody of Shane, which really tore JC up as he was fighting to get custody of his son and really wanted it. And Butchie and Deneen swore that they had nothing to do with JC's death. So I'm not the last of the McGee children. I have a younger brother, Shane, who was about seven months old when my dad died. And his mom is Deneen. Deneen was a sex worker and got pregnant by my dad and has a very, very crazy story of trying to sell Shane for money through this house that she had been working at. It's this wild, crazy story. Because of that, my dad wanted custody. So my dad was in the middle of a custody battle for Shane when he was murdered. Now, Deneen's boyfriend was this man named Butchie. And Butchie broke up my dad's marriage to Alyssa's mom in the past. 
So Butchie's sort of this recurring character in my dad's story of someone who didn't like him. This weird vendetta of like stealing my dad's women and like kind of this, this weird character in the story. And now he's with Deneen, who's fighting for custody of Shane. And my dad's final court hearing for custody of Shane was July 12th, 2002. But my dad was murdered on July 11th, 2002. So they stick out as like immediate suspects to me. So they were like the first people I looked at. Madison's second theory focused on her now 44-year-old cousin, Omar. There was a lot more going on there than meets the eye. And Omar is definitely not a innocent party in this, regardless of how you look at it. But my goal in that episode was to really look at him from like a suspect perspective. Like, could he have killed my dad? I don't know if he pulled the trigger, but that episode felt really necessary to me just because you can't really talk about this case and not talk about Omar because he plays such a key role. And if we're going to look at all the theories, we're going to look at all the theories, even if they're not, they end up not being true. We dive into that and his kind of background and story. We know Omar was there the morning of the murder, saw the home invaders, made that strange 911 call, and later gave conflicting statements to police. But if his mom and girlfriend were in as much danger as Omar indicated in his 911 call, why did he leave them in the house and go make that call? By the time he called 911, Kim had heard the gunshot which had killed JC and woken Madison's sister, Alyssa. But Omar never mentioned this on the call, instead referring to his uncle as his neighbor, which is just bizarre in the first place. I feel like calling them your uncle would be just a natural thing. Yeah. Like, why would you distance yourself from the victim by calling them a neighbor when they're a family member? Yeah, it's very interesting. It's definitely strange. So if Omar didn't kill JC, is he refusing to talk because he's scared of implicating someone else? Because he also refused to take a polygraph test. Madison's final theory relates to her dad's activities as a police informant, which we know can be incredibly risky and dangerous if the wrong people catch on. JC was killed by a single shot to the head at point-blank range. This has all the hallmarks of a planned professional hit. Yet this aspect of his life is completely discounted in the police narrative, who are really the only ones benefiting from JC's informant work. And it appears likely they weren't protecting him the way that they should have been. My last theory is sort of like, well, what's the police's involvement in this? My dad was an informant. Was something going on there? Were they part of this cover-up? Was he killed because he was an informant and the police don't want anyone to know that? Because then why would anyone else be an informant? If informants are out here getting killed, then why would anyone want to know that? So is his case not solved because of a grander mission on their behalf? Like, what's happening here? So we dive into that. And then... We sort of go through, okay, what couldn't be true? We've looked at these theories. What's not possible? Then you realize that they're all possible and that there could be a way that all of these theories mutually exist. But what would be the common thread here? And that's where in the episode that by the time this probably comes out, will have just come out, is this individual that everyone in my family is wildly afraid of. And I have spent the last four years like looking over my shoulder, wondering like when it's going to be my turn. And 
I have decided just to like unleash and dive into it and dive into his story and dive into how he could have been involved and dive into why I think this person wanted my dad dead more than anyone else. Why he could have and probably was this connector to all of the theories. And fortunately, I believe this person is currently being held in protective custody, awaiting a very massive case where he was just recently arrested for possessing so much fentanyl that it could have killed 65% of the West Virginia population. So we don't want to give away any spoilers for Madison's incredible and very well-received podcast because there is so much more to the story. In just under a week after the first episode dropped, Ice Cold Case debuted on Spotify's top charts in over 10 countries. So we're going to provide all the information for you to go check that out. But as you can probably gather, this has not been easy for Madison on so many levels by any stretch of the imagination. Just think about how confronting some of these conversations with family members are. Like, it's really a very hardcore thing to do. It's the hardest thing I've ever done in my entire life. And I've done a lot of really hard things. And this is definitely the hardest. Like, emotionally and just, like, trying to grapple with, like, I kind of knew going in because I had read the reports, but hearing it from family members and people who knew him really well. A police report really doesn't capture someone's personality. So hearing, like, even, like, the fun stories was just a lot. And, I mean, I sat with probably per interview eight hours at a time with these people and then having to leave and then go like right into the next one. And I felt like I almost grieved my dad's death in three parts. It was finding out he was dead at six. It was finding out he was murdered at 16. And then at like 23, finding out that like, maybe it was kind of his fault. Yeah. I just can't imagine the toll this may be taking on her, you know, just like having to talk to these family members and how just like disheartening it is that some of them aren't wanting to cooperate. Like it's strange. I mean, it's just such a vulnerable thing for her to embark in in the first place. And then, yeah, if if reaching out to family members, obviously you're going to get a mixed reaction from everybody. You don't know what it's going to be and you don't want to offend any family members, but you want to get the truth out. So it's very layered and very complex. And, you know, it's an incredible thing that she is doing. Absolutely. So Madison's family had obviously a mixed response to the podcast. And one thing she's grateful for is how much closer it did bring her to her sister, Alyssa. My sister has been absolutely incredible throughout this entire thing. We've gotten really close just through this journey. And she has made it explicitly clear that even if we disagree on what we think happened or how I'm telling this story or what I'm saying, or what I'm putting in the podcast, that she's very proud of me, and that she thinks that our dad would be very proud. And that is more meaningful than anything else that could come out of this, because at the end of the day, my dad is dead. There is nothing that will bring him back. It does not matter if I solve this case. It does not matter if someone goes to jail. My dad will not wake up in a coffin and walk to LA. So... If there is something that can repair any amount of this, it's having a relationship with a sister that I never got to know. I was raised as an only child, having like six siblings out in the world. Now it's very different. And I'm really grateful for that. And also she's been very, very, very supportive. 
But some of Madison's family have found the podcast so confronting that they're really upset with her for putting her dad's story out there in the public like this. Madison appreciates that if other people in her family are involved, namely some of her cousins, that the family wants to avoid anyone getting in trouble or going to jail. Some family members have even gone so far as to threaten Madison, hoping that she'll give up and stay quiet. But that is not happening. I've had a couple family members reach out as well who have been really happy that I'm doing this and have been very grateful. And I've had family members who are threatening to sue me and have given me death threats and like any crazy thing you can imagine them saying, misspellings and all, I have been told by these people. And it doesn't bother me even a little. I think that they think that Omar knows something. And I think it's actually very weird. They were old enough and around at the time and potentially involved in my dad's murder. If you wanted to set the record straight, tell the truth, solve this case, you had your moment, you had your time. A big thing that's been going around the family is like, oh, that's not really what happened. Or you got that wrong or whatever. And it's like, okay, well then tell me the right thing. What really happened? Oh, you're not willing to do that? Then I'm going to keep going until I get the right thing from someone somewhere. That's sort of my response to that is tell the truth and you had your chance. And now it's my turn. And unfortunately for you, I'm really good at producing shit. So I'm just going to do it that way. So the psychological damage that I am arguably definitely putting myself through by doing this, is it worse than me questioning for the rest of my life? But what if I had just made that podcast? Like what would have happened? Would someone be in jail? Would we have solved the case? But I would always wonder what would have happened. And so I think for that reason alone, it's definitely worth it. But I also can't shake the feeling that like, My dad wants me to be doing this more than anything because there is no world in which a person from West Virginia who never grew up around filmmakers or podcasters or journalists has the interest and skill set that I do unless it was fate and divinely put there for a reason. And I believe that wholeheartedly. It's rare that anything good ever comes out of senseless violence, especially when a family has been so deeply affected like Madison's has. But her dad's story is now gaining the traction and exposure it needs and deserves. Thanks to Madison's tenacity, creativity, and work ethic, which is exactly what should have happened all those years ago for those tasked with investigating this case. Madison knows she still has a long way to go. And unlike many other podcasts covering unsolved cases where the storyteller is removed from their subject, This has been a complete labor of love for Madison. She's now inextricably intertwined with this case after having been removed from it for a large portion of her life. Whether she will achieve resolution and more importantly, justice for her father remains to be seen. And we sincerely hope someone does the right thing and comes forward to close this painful chapter. But one thing we can be sure of is that no matter what, JC would be so proud of Madison and seeing not only how far she's come, but how she's honoring his memory in the ongoing fight to bring his killer or killers to justice. 
Well, huge thank you to Madison for telling your story and being so vulnerable with us. And please go check out our fantastic podcast. It's called Ice Cold Case. It's available everywhere that you listen to podcasts. And if you have any tips you can pass on, you can email her at icecoldcasepodcast.com. And if you are listening out there and you have a story to tell, you'd like to tell us, you can email us hello at the first three podcast.com. Follow us on Instagram, join our Facebook group. We're talking true crime all the time. Join our Patreon if you want some bonus content and come back tomorrow. We'll have a brand new episode of Killing Time right in your feed. And remember, only you can prevent serial killers. And keep your friends close. But not that close. Shout out to Jared Monaco for scoring original music for The First Degree, producing by Caitlin Cleveland, writing and research by Gemma Harris. Sources for this episode are Court Records, The Sunday News Register, The Wheeling Intelligencer, The Times Leader, WTRF News, The Daily Mail, After Buzz TV, WBOY 12 News, Radio Inc., and of course, the Ice Cold Case Podcast. And as always, our first three guest is always our largest source. Ross has all the spring deals you want, so you can say yes to more looks for you and your budget. Tube tops for less? Yes. Dad shorts for the weekend? Yes. Mini skirts for less than online? That's a yes for you and your bank account. Find your certified yes for me moment and save 20 to 60% off department store prices every day at Ross. Hurry in for spring deals today. Items and styles vary by store.